0: of man. History is something that we rarely, if ever, learn from, but we're going to uh, hope to learn a little bit from Christmas history today uh, and uh, why it is that, you know, we talk about peace on Christmas, but that's it, just one day. There used to be a real push for peace, remember peace? Well, I'm very pleased to have with us. On the show today, Adam Hochschild, an American author, journalist, and lecturer. Adam, thanks for being with us.
1: Good to be with you, Bert.
0: And uh, his well-known works include one of my all-time favorites, King Leopold's Ghost, an amazing story. And his most recent book is To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion, 1914 to 1918, which won many different uh, awards and During the Vietnam era, he was a U.S. Army reservist and founder of the Reservist Committee to stop the war. And he's written a new article asking why no one remembers the peacemakers celebrating war over and over and peace once. And speaking of Christmas as a day of celebrating peace, a man of the left, who you would think would be talking about this, Al Franken, Senator Al Franken, in his uh, electronic Christmas card this year, instead of calling to bring the troops home seems to be accepting permanent war. His card said, remember to keep all those who don't get to spend this time with their families, our brave men and women, serving overseas in your thoughts and prayers. And that's all well and good, but what about peace, bringing them home? I mean, he's not going to do it. Who is? And these days, you know, at the beginning of national football games and virtually all televised sports matches, there's a new near worship of all things military. This is new. This is a big change. There was a time, even in the midst of war, a great many politicians did speak out for peace. It really happened, but there's none of that now. Since 9-11, it seems like maybe we're locked into a permanent state of war mentality. And the question we're going to talk about today, is this acceptance of permanent war something... Other war-making leaders tried but ultimately failed to establish. Well, let me ask that first, actually, Uh, Adam Hochschild. uh, Is this, you know, the public has accepted permanent war. I can't help but think that other war-makers throughout history would love to have gotten it so that the people under them just established uh, the belief and acceptance of permanent war. What do you think?
1: I think you raise a very good question there, Bert, it's really quite amazing to me when you consider that the United States is not in a declared war uh, anywhere in the world, really, at this point, at least not in terms of <laughs> old-fashioned wars like World War One and World War Two and so forth, but we have hundreds of military bases in dozens of different countries, uh, and ever since September 11th and the shiver that that sent through the American people, uh, you know, reminding us that there are enemies out there, but sort of nameless, formless enemies, mm-hmm. and they could be anywhere and we don't know where they are. I think that feeling has allowed uh, politicians, the military industry, its backers in Congress, to cultivate this mood that we are forever at war. And so we hear the things that you mentioned at football games. Uh, Every politician, uh, you know, is always thanking veterans for their service uh, and so on. Well, I think we confuse two different things. Obviously, we should honor war veterans as individuals, they have suffered. Many of them have medical needs and so forth, which Mm -hmm. are not being met. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very different than honoring the causes for which they suffered or died because so many wars when you look back over the last century people agree today were not worth it you know uh, many people in the united states today who would say that the vietnam war was worth the sixty thousand or so american lives that no. were spent then? No. and looking back further to the first world war which i wrote about in my last book that's a war, I think, that uh, most people in most of the participating countries today would acknowledge remade the world for the worse in every conceivable conceivable way. Yes. So I think we need to honor people who try to stop wars such as this, um, and, and those are the folks we should really be celebrating.
0: That is true, and there are quite a few of those that uh, you write about in the, uh, the book, To End All Wars. Uh, and it's interesting. My... One of my kids uh, is in junior high school now, and uh, she's she's studying the First World War, and she knows I'm kind of a history buff, and she asked me, what was the First World War all about? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it seems that, you know, it was this royalty-dominated world uh, that, that just happened there. And, you know, we know that all wars, each and every one, needs an incident to Legitimized the making of that war. The tinderbox that was royalty and aristocracy-dominated Europe only needed the assassination of the heir to the Austria-Hungarian crown, Franz Ferdinand, uh, to start the war. But before that, in the so-called Civil War, there was Fort Sumter, the Second World War, there was, there was the alleged Polish attack on Germany, Pearl Harbor, and then the... Fictitious Tonkin Gulf incident, uh, which enabled the U.S. to make full-scale war on Vietnam, and of course, most recently there was September 11th. It seems that was remarkably effective. That incident has really created, as you said, the acceptance of a permanent state of war. We're living in a new America, a new national security state with a totally pervasive permanent state of war mentality, and that's it's it's just uh, you know everybody's gotten used to it. And my impression from reading about the coming of what was then called the Great War, because it was so big, was that all of the belligerents from Serbia through Austria, Hungary, that that empire to Russia, France, and England, all of them had military leaders who very much wanted war and could hardly wait for an incident to whip up the emotional nationalist frenzy needed for such a full-blown war. And from... from your research uh, in writing about the First World War, this widespread acceptance of what we call the global war on, tel- on terror, would those military leaders have been jealous? It sounds like, yeah, they probably would've. would have. Uh,
1: would, so your question is, were all these military leaguers eager to go to war in World War One? Well,
0: it seems that most of them were, but uh, having us believe in the, the permanent state of war, would they have been jealous that that uh, has jealous been... Jealous
1: the, that the, the way the American people are have accepted willing it. to accept that a lot today?
0: Yeah, because uh, they were Perhaps
1: they would have, although, of course, 1914 also was a period of escalating military spending. Uh, when there was curiously... Nothing really to go to war about, because the major nations of Europe were on reasonably good terms with each other. Uh, Germany was Britain's largest trading partner. Mm. Uh, No country in Europe openly claimed a piece of another's territory. Uh, The colonial spoils in Africa had all been divided up by agreement. Mm. Um, There weren't the usual causes of war, but of course there were people in all of the countries... Involved who had other motives. Uh, there are powerful forces in Germany which wanted to establish that Germany and not Russia would uh, dominate Eastern Europe. Um, there were forces in, in Austria Hungary. In fact, they had a military plan, in effect, to crush Serbia because yes. there were ethnic Serbs inside Austria Hungary who were riled up by uh, ethnic Serbian nationalism. Uh, The Russians uh, had uh, less than 10 years previously been humiliatingly defeated in the Russo-Japanese War and Mm -hmm. felt it to be even more of a humiliation that an Oriental power had defeated them. So the Russian military was terribly eager to show that it could fight a war uh, as well as anybody else. And then when Serbia was threatened, there were deep currents of uh, feeling in Russia, people wanting to come to the aid of their fellow Slavs, their Fellow Eastern Orthodox believers in Serbia, so everybody had some motives for wanting this war. But of course, as with most wars, it didn't turn out to be the limited conflict which would solve that particular motive for any of these folks. And in fact, all three of those empires that I mentioned—the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Russian—you know—the war destroyed them all. Yes. Uh, they were they were dissolved.
0: And it seems that, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later, there was some elements of class struggle that that did get involved as the war dragged on. And, of course, the First World War broke out in August of 1914. And by the time Christmas rolled around, there had been what you call five months of unparalleled industrial-scale slaughter, unquote. And despite the overwhelming chest-pounding for more and more brutality across the trenches, some of the soldiers... British and German, it seems, were infected with the spirit of Christmas. Now, December 25th, uh, 2014, is the 100th anniversary of the famous Christmas truce, which uh, seems to be fairly accepted now and pretty mainstream. But over the century, uh, it has morphed into legend. Please, you looked into this. Tell us what is known to be true about that Christmas truce.
1: Well, this is one of those legends which is largely true. Uh, the only part of the legend which is not true is that uh, legend has it that the ordinary soldiers on both sides went out in a no-man's land and met each other against the opposition of their officers. Um, this has a nice ring to it, but it wasn't true because officers as high as the rank of colonel also came out between the trenches and shook hands with their counterparts on the other side. Wow. The commanding generals on neither side knew about this in advance. Uh, they were upset, and they made sure it never happened again. But nobody who took part, as far as I can tell, was, was punished. Uh, it was quite a remarkable event, because, uh, as, as you said, Bert, the uh, you know slaughter had been going on on an industrial scale for nearly five months. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, had been killed. There were 27,000 French soldiers killed in a single day, August 22nd of that year. Mm. Uh, nobody in Europe had seen war like this before. And then Christmas Day dawned, and in different places, different things happened. Uh, some spots, uh, soldiers heard... Uh, and a man on the other side singing Christmas carols, and they started singing as well. And often it was the same carol with words in different languages. Mm. Um, someone in a German trench held up a sign saying, uh, We know shoot, you know shoot. Mm. And uh, then people began quickly popping out of their trenches and mm. met by the thousands in the no man's land between the trenches, this very um, muddy, shell pocked uh, patch of ground. The trenches, in some cases, were a few hundred yards apart, some cases uh, closer than that. And there are photographs of some of these meetings um, that show, uh, you know, men with their arms around each other, and Mm. soldiers traded souvenirs, uh, uh, British rum for German beer. Sometimes they snipped off each other's coat buttons and Mm. traded them, Mm. Uh, and uh, in a couple of spots, they appear to have played soccer. There was no proper soccer field, of course, and no mm-hmm. soccer balls, but, you know, kicking around a tin can or a sandbag uh, stuffed with straw. And at the end of the day, people went back to their trenches. In many places, the firing resumed the very next day. Uh, in a few spots, uh, it w- was not till a day or two later, and then... You know, within a few days the full fury of the war was back again and in the months to come there would be enormous bloody offensives and the introduction of the flamethrower and the introduction of poison gas warfare and all of the horrors which we know so way so well. But that one day was quite remarkable.
0: And did that happen in other places as well, maybe to a lesser extent?
1: Um, on Christmas Day nineteen fourteen It appears to have only happened in uh, the the fraternization, Mm -hmm. happened only where German soldiers in the West, that is uh, northern France and part of Belgium, faced British troops Uh, on the part of the front where Belgian and French troops held the Allied line. Uh, The firing pretty much stopped, but there was uh, little or no fraternization. Mm -hmm. Uh, The French and Belgians were still very angry that their countries had been invaded by the Germans, and uh, the Belgians in particular had seen most of their country occupied quite brutally by that point, so they didn't fraternize. The fraternization took place between the British and Germans, um, where it was eased by the fact that uh, a great many Germans spoke English. Uh, there had God. been 50,000 Germans living in Britain uh, right up to the beginning of the war because wages were slightly higher there.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And hmm. uh,
1: so, you know, in many places there wasn't a language barrier. And it's but a- that was the only fraternization that really took place in the West. I-,
0: I think it's fascinating, too. A lot of people know, but not everybody, about the the relations, the uh, the, the uh, royalty of, of England and the royalty of uh, Germany were, in fact, related. They were cousins, I believe, of some sort.
1: Yeah, actually, all first cousins. Uh, um, the Fair. royal family of Britain, of Germany, of Russia, um, and uh, all the more reason why it was so ridiculous to go to war. Yeah. Uh, you know, the <laughs> I mean, the, the British king at this point didn't have, Uh, much power. You know, Britain was really ruled by uh, Parliament and and its Cabinet. But the German uh, monarch had a great deal of power, and the Russian Tsar had total power. They were communicating with each other up to the last minute, uh, oddly enough, in English, which was the language that they had in common, um, saying, you know, can't we stop this rush to war? But each of them, as I say, had... (laughs) The motives for going to war and so despite the fact that they were first cousins and had been on yachting holidays together in the baltic and so right. forth uh, they ordered their armies to war against each other
0: absolute madness bert cohen here we're talking with our guest adam hochschild about uh, his recent article why no one remembers the peacemakers celebrating war over and over and peace once um and your article points out that reenactments and commemorations of that Christmas Day truce 1914 today include royalty like Prince William, who was of course, the Duke of Cambridge. And as you ask, given the rarity of peace celebrations of any sort, what's made the Christmas truce safe for royalty, mayors and diplomats?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question to me. Obviously, I'm happy to see people celebrating this event because it was a remarkable event and it deserves to be celebrated, but we very rarely see any kind of officially sanctioned celebrations of something like this. Instead, we see celebrations of victories in battle and so on. Uh, I think what makes it safe is a couple of things. Um, For one thing... uh, The Christmas truce did not represent a breakdown of military discipline. As I mentioned, officers up to the rank of colonel uh, took part uh, in this fraternization as well. The war resumed the next day. Uh, So that makes it safe. Uh, Another thing is that it never happened. Nothing like it ever happened again. So Mm. it didn't really represent a new direction in the war. And finally, commemorating anything uh, during this four four-and-a-half-year centen- four centenary period when people are doing a lot of remembering about the First World War, commemor- commemorating anything is very big business. Oh, uh, right. Of course. In uh, northern France and Belgium, I'm sure some of your listeners have probably visited those areas, mm-hmm. First World War tourism is a huge thing. Restored trenches, forts, monuments, graveyards. Uh, there are guided tours all over the place there, and lots of hundreds of thousands of people go each year. The regional government in that part of Belgium alone is spending $41 million beefing up its uh, tourism infrastructure mm. during the uh, these next four years, and that's not counting private money that's going into adding hotel rooms and restaurants and that sort of thing. And I'm sure these folks figure that, you know, if they can add some peace sites to the itinerary as well as existing war sites, so much the better. Uh, Another thing that is business-related has to do with the fact that they played soccer on Christmas Day, 1914, in the no-man's land between the trenches. And this has been seized upon by the professional soccer industry, which is a huge business, like professional, like, like, like pro football right, right. in this country. Sure, um, You know, European the top European pro soccer teams are worth more than $3 billion each. Um, five of the world's ten most valuable professional teams are in Britain. And so I think it's no accident that the trade association... Uh-huh. professional soccer has jumped into the act and they are one of the sponsors of uh, a youth soccer tournament that's taking place in Belgium this month, they're also one of the sponsors and funders of uh, an education pack of materials about the Christmas truce, um, eyewitness accounts, photographs, worksheets uh, test questions and so on which is being sent to every school in the United Kingdom and uh, Prince William is the royal, the official royal patron of this organization, the Trade Association for Professional Soccer. And he's also one of the judges for a children's comp- competition to design a monument to the Christmas truce. So it really does have official sanction.
0: Well, I-, I wonder if, golly gee, soccer is the official, you know, universal language. <laughs> that's a way to publicize that because there's a lot of money in that for sure uh,
1: well, And I, obviously you know we would all rather people play soccer or any sport yes uh, rather than make war but it's still always interesting to see you know what are the business calculations going into this because actually professional soccer is a little worried In uh, a number of countries in Europe, they're losing their audience somewhat as other things compete for people's leisure time and spending.
0: Hmm. So they're trying to grab onto that and and, uh, shore up soccer as the universal language. Now, I, I read your book, To End All Wars, many books ago, I'll have to confess. But if my memory is correct, which may or may not be beyond the one now acceptable celebration of peace during that awful war there were many efforts to prevent the war and then to bring it to an end before it finally did end. And as you say, the Duke of Cambridge and other high dignitaries wouldn't be caught dead endorsing the anniversaries of far more subversive peace-related events which came about. That's right. Tell, tell us, please, about some of them.
1: Well, there are a number of these coming up. For example, uh, in 1917, hundreds of thousands of soldiers in the French army mutinied. They had just had the experience of seeing, uh, you know, huge numbers of their fellow soldiers killed and wounded in one of these senseless Western Front attacks where masses of men were sent, you know, marching out of their trenches and into the face of machine gun fire. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers that spring 1917 mutinied Uh, They, for the most part, didn't leave their trenches or camps, but just told their officers, we will not take part in any more of these suicidal attacks. And, indeed, um, the French Army High Command did not dare order any more such attacks uh, for the following year. I think they should be celebrated. Um, That same year, 1917, saw... uh, something else going on on the other side of Europe, the Eastern Front, where uh, Russian troops faced German and Austro-Hungarian troops. In the spring of 1917, uh, the the so-called February Revolution in Russia, the Tsar was overthrown. 300 years of the Romanov dynasty came to an end, and that news spread like wildfire through the Russian army. And there was an American correspondent for the United Press at the front who looked through his binoculars and saw Russian and German soldiers meeting each other in no man's land. They didn't have a language in common, but he could see them communicating in sign language. The German soldiers would thrust their bayonets into the earth, and the Russian soldiers blew across their open palms to show that the Tsar had been blown away um a lot more fraternization took part that took place that year especially after november when the bolsheviks took over in russia mm-hmm. they were committed to ending the war and at this point you can find lots of photographs online of russian and german soldiers fraternizing including my favorite which shows russian and german soldiers the russians in those high fur hats uh, dancing in couples in the snow. Uh, an amazing thing. But the generals on both sides were horrified. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, it really did represent a total breakdown of discipline in the Russian army from which people were deserting by the hundreds of thousands. And the German generals were horrified that this kind of spirit was going to infect their army, which it really did start to do. And I don't think we'll see any official commemorations of these <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, not by the royalty that, that still exists. That, that's uh, interesting. I wonder if any peace organizations actually do.
1: And well, I hope so. Um, there's a curious thing in in Germany and Austria, which is this: there are several places where there are small monuments or memorial plaques in Germany and in and in Austria to deserters from the Second World War, because mm. everybody wants to celebrate those who resisted the Nazis. Right. And there were a lot of desertions from the Nazi army in the last months of the Second World War. But nobody has put up any monuments to deserters from the First World War. Uh, and I think they should, because actually one of the reasons why that war finally came to an end in the West, where the United States, Britain, and France were fighting the Germans, is that uh, German soldiers started to desert in large numbers, not from the front, but from the rear areas. They would either evade orders to go to the front, or they would simply go underground. The police chief of Berlin in the late 1918 estimated that there were 40,000 deserters in hiding in Berlin alone. Well, I think these folks deserve a monument, too
0: and, you know, people talk about uh, courage, bravery, patriotism. Certainly, I would think it could be uh, said about them as well. And you note that uh, at the time these uh, desertions were going on and and the uh, some of the uh, truces, that there was a, a certain Adolf Hitler that uh, didn't like what was going on there and did not participate in that. And I can't help but think that these desertions, uh, you know, it, it's fairly well understood that that World War II came about because of the ending of of World War One. It was not complete, and uh, there were certainly those who uh, looked down on such uh, people taking uh, peace into their own hands. And I, I wonder about—I mean, the world, bef- the European world before the war was was one of royal dynasties in virtually every country. What part of the mutinies do you think were a class struggle in which, you know, lowly working class soldiers of each side figured, you know, maybe I have more in common with the people in the trenches on the other side? What what part of it do you think was, uh, you know, part of a, a class struggle which had some real potential for, you know, something more dangerous and that the ruling class may have understood this?
1: Well, I wish that were true. No. But I actually don't think it was. Uh, I think that the soldiers who mutinied or deserted did so because they didn't want to get killed. And they mm-hmm. saw people all around them uh, you know, being killed up to that point. Um, the, the war was really a lesson, I think, uh, and a very discouraging lesson that nationalism sort of trumped class identity, Mm. because up to the point when the war began, the socialist movement in Europe, which was very strong, there were more than 10 million socialist voters in the European countries together. Uh, You know, they held uh, meetings every two years where the leaders of all the socialist parties in the different countries got together, and they passed resolutions uh, denouncing war and, and so on. Talk of you know staging a general strike if Europe seemed to be going to war, and even on the eve of the war, uh, literally a week before it began, there was an emergency meeting of the leaders of Europe's left-wing parties in Brussels, and the French and German socialist leaders stood with their arms around each other, and you know swore that their men would never make war on each other. Uh, the French leader Jean Jaurès, uh, because of that three days later, when he returned home to Paris, he was assassinated, and three days after that, the war began, and unfortunately, on both sides in Europe, the governments were astonished that the number of people who refused their conscription notices, uh, you know, refused to come when they were drafted, was far less than they had anticipated. Uh, the French government, for example, had prepared a, a long list of leftists whom they sure, were sure were not going to show up when they were drafted, a list of people to be you know, put in preventive detention. Hmm. They never had to do that because almost everywhere the, the turnout was far greater than anybody had anticipated. This startled the governments, hmm. and it was deeply discouraging for those people in the, the labor movement, the socialist movement, who were still uh, anti-war.
0: Fascinating. And I, I believe uh, your book mentioned how in, in uh, England, formerly Great Britain, uh, it was convenient to, uh, to to have this war uh, because there was the Irish uprising that was happening at the time, and that was rather a challenge to the uh, the British aristocracy and the ruling class there. So this wave of nationalism it's interesting how you know it's emotional it really it, it drags at the emotions you know saluting a flag and getting welled up with pride that uh nationalism i guess has pretty much throughout the 20th century trumped any kind of worker international worker solidarity
1: sadly it has Uh, All of us, to one degree or another, have this uh, tribal feeling
2: Hmm. inside
1: us, and it can be a very dangerous thing indeed. Um, Certainly, as uh, the outbreak of war approached in 1914, there were a number of places where class tensions seemed severe, there were waves of strikes in Britain especially, uh, waves of strikes in in Russia in a big way, um, that both cases could have led to some sort of wider upheaval, and these immediately came to an end as soon as the war began. Similarly, as you mentioned, uh, in Ireland, there was, you know, one of these periods of recurrent uh, rebellion against the British, Uh, and that pretty much dissipated as well. Uh, You know, right up until two weeks before the war began in 1914, the British government was convinced that their next war was going to be in Ireland Uh, but somehow this business when you know the mother country is threatened, rally to the colors, it's a very powerful impulse that is buried somewhere in all of us and it takes a a brave person to resist that impulse Um, I'm fascinated by who those Brave people were. Yes, and I tried to write about them in, in to end all wars. And to me, the bravest of them were those who acknowledged the conflict in their own feelings. For example, one of my heroes has always been Bertrand Russell, the great British philosopher. Yes, who was a staunch opponent of World War One, um, and ended up spending six months in jail because of that. Uh, worked very nobly throughout the war, uh, donating his time to an organization to support conscientious objectors, giving speeches, writing ceaselessly until he was sent to jail. But he spoke very movingly about the conflict in his own feelings, Um, and at one point wrote that uh, he said, love of England is very nearly the strongest emotion I possess. And in appearing to set it aside at such a moment, I was making a very difficult renunciation. Uh, But he was acutely aware of the hysteria on all sides of him and worked very hard not to get caught up in it.
0: We're talking with author Adam Hochschild about uh, why, why no one remembers the peacemakers celebrating war over and over and over and peace once. And you mentioned uh, Jean Jaurès. Here in the U.S., virtually no one has ever heard of him. Say a little bit more about who he was and and how French history has treated
1: him. Well, Jean Jaurès was the leader of the French Socialist Party. Um, He was uh, trained as a philosopher, actually had to write his thesis in Latin, um, but was somebody who... Uh, became uh, a leader of the, the great working-class party in, in France. He saw the war coming, as many people did, uh, especially during the six months of the first half of 1914, spoke out very strongly uh, against it, um, and was a, a man who had you know personal friends among the leaders of the German socialists, the British socialists, and so forth, um, he was very close, for instance, to Keir Hardy, who was the leader of the Independent Labor Party in Britain, which was really the, the strongest radical party there. And then, as I mentioned, uh, Joris rushed, as as did Hardy and other people, to this emergency meeting of the leaders of the socialist parties in Brussels just a week before the, world, the war began, stood in front of this big crowd there with his arm around the German socialist leader, pledged, We'll never make war on each other. Uh, Then uh, he went home to Paris. Three days after that, he was assassinated as he was having dinner in a cafe by a French militarist. His assassin was kept in jail for the duration of the war and then put on trial when the war ended, but was found innocent because the shooting was judged to be a crime of passion. Uh, a legal gimmick, which is one of those things that historically has mostly been used to allow men to get away with murdering yes, women. Yes, In this case, <laughs> it was used to justify something else.
0: Well, and how has French history treated him?
1: Well, I think today you would find that many French people honor him, uh, although the First World War is still more controversial in France than it is in Britain or this country, for instance, huh. because. France was invaded by the Germans and occupied. France uh, was treated very badly, and I can understand. You know, it's even though I think uh, very few French people today would say the war was worth the tremendous cost in French lives, because France suffered disproportionately to almost anybody else. The 1.4 million. Uh, French soldiers were killed in the war. Um, mm. Roughly half of all men aged 20 to 32 when the war began were dead by the time it was over. Wow. Uh, even though very few people would say that was a just a fully justified sacrifice, it's still not a nice thing to have your country invaded. No, um, I sh- and I think one of the tricky things as we look back on a war like this is, you know, even those of us in the United States who've been opposed to the war in Iraq, the war in Vietnam, and so on, we often say, well, I would fight if somebody invaded the United States, but the problem with these wars was that they had nothing to do with that. Well, here, you know, Uh it's reasonable enough if you were French or Belgian to think, hey, here are these soldiers invading my country. They have no right to do that. I'm going to fight against them. Uh, And people did, but then the, the consequences of the war were just... So oh, catastrophic.
0: But there are some uh, monuments and streets named after him, correct?
1: Ajourés, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So he's uh, uh, gotten some re- respect in there. And, uh, you know, I wonder, oh, yes, we we haven't talked about the women in particular. Some of the, there were women in the British peace movement. Did any come from uh, upper respectable classes? And how were they treated at the time? How are they remembered today?
1: Well, Uh, I think they're not remembered enough. There were some remarkable uh, women, um, actually from many different countries. Uh, In this country, for example, Jane Addams, the pioneer social worker, was one of several American women plus women from other countries who helped organize and took part in a remarkable conference of women from countries on both sides of the war and from neutral countries which took place in Holland in 1915. Holland was neutral in the First World War. And governments uh, of the warring countries on both sides put all sorts of obstacles in the way of women from their countries going there. Uh, But nonetheless, a small delegation managed to get there from Germany, another from occupied Belgium, Uh, the British government prevented women going from Britain, but there were three British women who happened to be in France uh, before they did this, and they went to the conference. And if you look at photographs of this conference, which took place in The Hague in 1915, you see women from these different warring countries sitting next to each other on a platform. And it's the only time during this four and a half years when you can find any kind of photograph like that of people from the, the two sides talking together uh, amicably. Um, So I take my hat off to those women. They were not able to stop the war, but they sure as hell tried. Uh, After the conference ended, they sent delegations to governments all over Europe, which heard them out politely and then kept on fighting. Um, A one British woman in particular, I think, needs to be remembered. Uh, Emily Hobhouse. She was a well-known human rights activist who uh, is usually remembered for having been the person who exposed the British use of concentration camps to lock up Boer women and children during the Boer War. But during the First World War she did something quite amazing. Uh, She traveled without telling anybody and with nobody's permission and on behalf of no one except herself. Hmm. She traveled from Britain to France which was legal, she then went from France into Switzerland, which was neutral, from Switzerland to Germany, and then in Germany she went to Berlin and went to call on the German foreign minister, whom she had known before the war, and she began talking peace terms. You know, if we did this, might you do that? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you did this, maybe we could do that. Um, She was not representing anybody. But she was trying to look for a deal that could be made. She came away believing erroneously, I'm afraid, Mm -hmm. that she had the outlines of a peace agreement that the Germans might agree to, went back to England, tried and failed to see people high in the British government to talk about this. Uh, they were appalled that she'd made this trip and immediately uh, rushed a law through making it illegal for anybody to do anything like this and wrote her off as a complete crackpot Mm. but I think she deserves to be remembered because in this war that killed so many million people um, she's the only human being who traveled from one side to the other and back again in search of peace
0: and what was her name again?
1: Emily Hobhouse
0: Emily Hobhouse. We should try to remember that. Try to remember peace, as Neil Young sang. You know, and during the the war in Vietnam and now the anybody who who is in any kind of uniform, uh, let's face it, tends to be treated by many people as a hero, as a brave hero, with demonstrating courage just by wearing a uniform. And the right wing tried during vietnam and, and nowadays too to paint the peace protesters as as traitors as people without courage too and it seems to me one could argue that it takes great courage to speak out in the old village square and that it sometimes takes sincere patriotism what about the bravery there and how just for putting on a uniform you're called a brave hero but those people who really display courage What are your thoughts on on that uh, odd uh, uh, contradiction?
1: Well, I think those are the most courageous ones of all in some ways, because when there's a war, particularly a war that was accompanied by the kind of unparalleled propaganda apparatus, unparalleled um, whipped-up hysteria that the First World War was, really takes courage to go against the grain when everybody around you is rushing to enlist, waving flags, right. uh, and so on. In Britain at that time, for example, there was such contempt for the idea of conscientious objectors that there were women who stood on street corners with white feathers, which is supposed to be a symbol of cowardice for some reason. And if a young man came by who was not in a military uniform, he would be handed a white feather. And in that atmosphere, to stick to your convictions requires tremendous courage. Uh, one of the people, of, one of the groups of people I write about in To End All Wars, is a group of British resistors within the military that had been conscripted into the army before the government had fully established how the conscientious objector system was going to work, and there were 49 of them altogether. They were shipped across the English Channel to France and told, if you continue to disobey orders here, you'll be shot because this is a war zone. Uh, And they were put with other soldiers, ordered, you know, right face, left face, forward march. None of them obeyed. Um, They were then locked up in a prison. Their families in Britain were desperate because they did not know where these men were. Uh, one guy managed to smuggle out a postcard saying that they were being held at the port of Boulogne while the government figured out what to do with them, whether to shoot them or do something else. This postcard reached their supporters in London who immediately mobilized Bertrand Russell, you know, mm-hmm. who was quite a famous man, went to see the Prime Minister and said, you must not shoot these people, it would be a terrible scandal if that happened. And their lives were saved. Hmm. Uh, And um, to me, it's an enormously moving moment. The thought of these, these young men sticking by their principles, even after they'd been told they would be shot,
0: About uh, bravery and speaking out against war, you know, peace is talked about at Christmas time, but but hardly at all. Our guest today is uh, Adam Hochschild, uh, whose uh, book "To End All Wars, 1914 to 1918," and uh, has written about this as well. How important! I mean, you were among your many activities. uh, You were a U.S. Army reservist and founder of the Reservist Committee to Stop the War in Vietnam. One of the most Powerful demonstrations, of course, during the whole long struggle to end the war in Vietnam, was the uh, Vietnam veterans against the war when they threw their medals on the steps of the Capitol. That took, to me, amazing bravery. And I don't know how much that's uh, thought about now. And I wonder how important that kind of uh, statement, that, that powerful video image was, to ending the war. And I wonder how important to ending the First World War and the Vietnam War and the Iraq War the peace movements have been, especially from the inside. What do you think about that, Adam?
1: Well, I think for ending the Vietnam War, there's no question it was really crucial, um, because the u.s. military was really in a state of collapse there were soldiers who were refusing to obey orders um... the you know they were shooting their officers from behind sometimes in vietnam um, and uh... you know the military was really balking. soldiers did not want to fight this war and i think that was a very important factor in yes. bringing the war to an end um, And I think those folks have to be honored. Uh, It's much harder to resist. It's much harder to speak out against a war when you are in uniform. There are Mm. very severe penalties for doing so. But uh, these active-duty soldiers who made clear they didn't want to fight, I think they were an important factor in making the U.S. Army realize that it could not continue to fight this war.
0: And I wonder about Iraq, too, because that was kind of falling apart. I mean, it's sort of ratcheted up again after it's been officially over. But a lot of uh, military people started to uh, speak out, and there's Iraq veterans against the war. And I can't help but think that that's really powerful.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I hope it, 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 uh, you know, I I think that the veterans speaking out today is very important. Uh, one of the problems though with the conflicts that we're in right now is a lot of them are <laughs> subcontracted <Yes>. to private <laughs> contractors, uh, you know, people flying drones, uh, and that they don't necessarily require you know uh, American military men on the ground in the way that previous wars did
0: yeah that's that's for sure true as, as we've discussed today, virtually all things military are you know put on a on a pedestal, and people what seems really different now from during the Vietnam War is that people who are are that are concerned about the permanent war um, have accepted their powerlessness. People for peace feel you know powerless and just seem to accept that. And that—that's really different. Are we powerless? It d- does going out in the streets make it <clears throat> make a difference? And what about this new sense of powerlessness? That seems to be quite a victory for the war makers.
1: It is, and I'm discouraged by it because, as I look at, you know, something like the Vietnam War, where I really do believe that protests by the hundreds and thousands, millions of us who marched in demonstrations against that war, yes. and by men within the military who made clear they didn't want to fight on. I think both those things constituted real pressures on the United States to get out of that war, yes, uh, and were things which brought it to an end much sooner than it would have uh, otherwise. Today, I don't see anything quite equivalent. and. Yeah i'm discouraged by it. it's a little harder to protest because there isn't something as large and obvious as half a million u.s. troops in vietnam which there were yes. um, you know at the, at the peak there instead you know we've got drone strikes here and you know military aid going to the iraqi government there and uh... God knows what's going on at the, you know, the profusion of U.S. military bases that are popping up all over Africa now. It's more diffuse. It's more nebulous. A lot of it is more secret. Uh, it changes quite rapidly. Uh, ISIS, which is now the big enemy, you know, mm-hmm. didn't seem to exist a year or so ago. It becomes harder to protest, and that's scary because there is a war going on, and we do need to understand it and realize i think for the most part how senseless it is
0: and it does seem like the war makers have unlike others learned from history that uh... you you keep the uh, uh... american casualties to a minimum and fight the war with drones very little protest And we're approaching the 50th anniversary of the arrival of the first official U.S. combat troops in Vietnam. Already, as you write, a duel is shaping up between the thankers and those who want to honor the anti-war movement that helped end that senseless tragedy. So in the anniversary of the start of the Vietnam War, is this an opportunity to examine modern memory and perhaps to rekindle talk of peace?
1: It sure is, because... Uh, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of U.S. combat troops. There were, of course, U.S. advisors, oh, yes. so-called, who, who were in Vietnam for quite some time oh, yeah. uh, before then. Uh, and the Pentagon is trying to market with a, a series of events and a commemorative website and so forth. But uh, I guarantee you, none of those events are going to celebrate the enormous peace demonstrations which I think helped bring that war to an end. None of them are going to celebrate Daniel Ellsberg's leaking of the Pentagon Papers, which helped bring that war to an end. None of them are going to celebrate the, the resistance within the military, um, the, uh, you know, the veterans who, who threw their medals on the steps of the Capitol. Right. All these things are part of the history, too, and I think they're, they're an important part of the history because that was a senseless war that the U.S. should not have joined in the first place.
0: And it took courage and, I would dare say, at least in my opinion, real patriotism, dedicated dedication to what America is supposed to be about, to to stand up and resist that war. And and people forget that now, and, and the resistance to the war seems people just accept their powerlessness. But we are not powerless. We can speak out. But it, as you say, it's so diffuse, it's hard to... Uh, see, you know, have that opposition. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I I highly recommend uh, both books, King Leopold's Ghost, which is amazing about uh, the Belgian adventures in the Congo, and To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being with us and uh, shedding some light. Thank you, Bert. W.E.R.U. is made possible by the generous support of our listeners.
3: Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. No country has the right to dictate borders, to bully smaller countries, to intimidate, to coerce, to pursue their own interests. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the U.S. wants to peacefully resolve the conflict in Ukraine, where Russia has amassed troops, prompting fears of a military invasion. President Joe Biden is expected to speak by phone today to Russian President Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin's request. Foreign policy expert Stephen Pfeiffer with the Brookings Institution believes diplomacy could help defuse the situation.
2: It would be better to talk than to have what could turn out to be the biggest land war in europe since world war ii breakout
3: russia contends the troops are there for military exercises and denies plans to invade which pfeiffer says is possible
2: i tend to think that this is more towards bluff than an actual intention for a real invasion because i calculate the cost as significant for moscow but mr putin has his own logic
3: biden already warned putin the u.s and european allies will respond with economic sanctions and military support should russia invade A group of former executive branch lawyers asked the Supreme Court Wednesday to reject former President Donald Trump's efforts to block his records from the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack, arguing the need to pursue facts outweighs Trump's claims of executive privilege. New polling shows House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has a nearly 50% job approval rating among independents, putting the California Republican 8 percentage points ahead of President Joe Biden. The Gallup poll also found McCarthy's overall approval slightly higher, the Democratic House Speaker.